Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy. It is May 11th, 2020, and the college baseball season has been shut down for almost exactly two months now. Um, But if you're missing college baseball, fret not. Not only are we continuing to podcast twice a week here on the Baseball America College Podcast, this week over at BaseballAmerica.com, Joe and I released a never too early top 25 for 2021. Uh, We finally feel like we have enough to go on to look ahead to next season. Thank you, MLB, for finally finalizing your draft plans a month before the draft is supposed to begin. And But because MLB has, has done that and because the NCAA had their eligibility ruling now, I don't know, five, six weeks ago, we we have two of the biggest pieces of the puzzle in terms of roster construction. And with that, we can actually look ahead to some on-field action. I mean, we're we're talking about plenty of things here on the podcast and, and in the magazine and on the website. And a lot of them have are, are not about what's happening on the field because of course nothing no, no games are taking place. But this is a little different, and it means we actually can look ahead to on-field action. Uh, hopefully, we get that um, you know soon this summer in the form of some summer leagues. But minimally, we we can look ahead to 2021. So that's what we're going to talk about on the podcast today. We do not have a guest joining us this time. It, it's just me and Joe talking about a top 25 the way we would like if it were a normal Monday uh, in May or April or March. Uh, uh, here on the podcast. So that that's the plan for today. Uh, and Joe, it's uh, it's an interesting time that we actually got to to deal with this because today should have been uh, the last Monday kind of of the regular season. Conference tournaments should be starting in a week. Uh, instead, of course, there, there is nothing. Uh, but it we're uh, we should be at the, you know, very meaningful end of the college baseball season. And instead that we, we of course haven't had baseball for two months now. Yeah. It's uh, it finally, it's funny. We mentioned probably three, four weeks ago on the pod, how for a while there was enough news going on and we were just really trying to wrap our heads around the situation that it didn't feel much different. I mean, obviously we knew, there were no games. We weren't going to games, but you know, there was just so much going on that, that it didn't feel that weird, I, I suppose. And then it finally, and then I mentioned that it would, it would finally kind of, it hit me in a couple waves of one of the games we were watching for our uh, Friday podcast series hit me a certain way that made me feel a little bit sad that we didn't have games. And, and I have to admit it, it hit me again this weekend. I was watching 
the 2014 and then 2017 Big Ten Tournament Championship games, BTN's done a, I think, a really good job. One of my criticisms of, and this is not just a baseball thing, but one of my criticisms of some of the conference networks is they, they tend to over-index, in my opinion, on games that happened in the very recent past or games that are certifiable classics. And I get why you run the classics, because they're classics. But I've always kind of been interested in what's in between that. And I think BTN has done a really good job of that with, you know, the 2014 final was that Schwarber, Sam Travis, national seed Indiana team against a really good Nebraska team that I actually forgot was as good as they were that year. And the 2017 was kind of a Cinderella season. It was Iowa, the 2017 Iowa team, and then Northwestern getting to the final that year. Wasn't a particularly good game in the final, but it was just an interesting storyline that it was, it was those two teams. That was the Jake Adams, Iowa team. And maybe it's because conference tournaments, to your point, are starting to happen or should have been happening next week with actually this week, I think, like the SWAC tournament typically, the Ivy Patriot would have been going on uh, later towards the weekend. But maybe it's because of that or maybe it's because, you know, I didn't cover the 2014 when I wasn't covering college baseball yet, but I was at that 2017 tournament. And maybe it was just being able to kind of put myself back where I was at that time that made me a little nostalgic and a little bit, a little bit wishful that, that we had college baseball, but whatever it was, I found myself this weekend, I mean, really enjoying watching those games again, but also being, being sad again that we don't have college baseball. And, and it is going to get worse when we start to really get into postseason time. But like I've said before, you know, once we have things to look forward to, whether that's summer ball in some form, fall practice in some form, and then of course the season, I think that'll help a lot. And I say all that to say that this exercise of doing this top 25, actually, I found helpful in that way. It was actually really nice and really refreshing to instead of be talking about the albeit important stuff of putting a bow on last this past season and talking about what came of this season with the coronavirus pandemic and kind of put that to the side for a second and really start to talk about what 2021 might look like. Because it's going to be a really unique season in college baseball, however and whenever it happens. But it could be a really, really good season just in terms of the raw talent on campus around college baseball. So I, I found it almost therapeutic to be able to do this top 25 over the weekend and certainly a little shot in the arm for me to be able to project forward as opposed to looking back. Yeah, I, um, I'm sick of talking about 2020. Um, and like, I get why we're still doing it. And having said that, that doesn't mean that we're like totally done yet. I, I don't know that, like, I don't know that I can say that yet, but you know, I, it feels like it was forever ago. And in some ways it was, it was two months ago, but like, it also just feels like it was a lifetime ago and it was only four weeks of games and just like, I'm, I'm very much ready to turn the page. And after two months, after the final game of the season, you know, ordinarily we would have fully turned the page. Like summer ball would be just about over, uh, would be over, I guess. So, you know, it's, it's been, it's definitely time to start looking ahead. It, it's just happening at a weird time in the calendar where, you know, the season should be hitting its final stages. So that is what it is, but I'm, I'm happy to be able to look ahead and, and get back to kind of projecting on what will be rather than reflecting on what was and lamenting what could have been. That stuff was all very important to do, like you said, Joe, but like it also, 
there's only so much of it that, that can be done. So it's, it, I'm ready to move on to, to 2021. Uh, there, we're not, we're not fully there yet, obviously. Uh, there, that's, there's a lot that has to happen between now and February. There's a lot that has to happen between now and the, you know, when school begins in the fall. But we can start looking at how these rosters are taking shape. So the the news that kind of really allowed this to happen is that MLB, um, I guess on Friday was when all the reports came out that they were set to officially announce, which actually has not happened yet. Um, presumably that'll happen shortly that the draft will be five rounds only previously you you might be thinking to yourself i thought the draft was only five rounds that wasn't fully settled mlb had negotiated with the players union so that they could the draft would be no less than five rounds but that mlb could add more rounds to the draft if it wanted unilaterally and mlb tried to take another proposal to the players that would have made for a 10 round draft but it would have restricted bonuses in round six through 10 in a way uh, like that the original agreement hadn't really talked about and it would have limited the number of free agent signings that teams could have made non-drafted free agent signings so the players rejected that and once I don't think they really made a counter proposal so once that had happened MLB was like well I guess we'll just stick to this five round plan so they're going to hold the draft on June 10 and 11, five rounds only, and then you can sign free agents for no more than $20,000 after the draft. So with those um, restrictions, structure, whatever, in place, we now have the, the draft side of this. We had the, the NCAA side of it with every player, every spring sport athlete getting a year of eligibility back. So everyone is, is eligible to return and now only 160 players will be drafted. So there's still a lot of unknown in that. I mean, first of all, we don't know exactly who the drafted players will be. And we don't yet know how seniors especially are going to react to the opportunity to sign uh, for or, or any player, but especially the, the seniors, how they'll they'll react to being able to to sign for uh, a non-drafted bonus of just twenty thousand dollars versus coming back to school. But if you come back to school, you have to pay more money um, because you have to enroll again, and this is a partial scholarship sport. Uh, so there's a lot of, of fluctuation uh, that that still can be made. Uh, we don't really know how how many how aggressive teams are going to be in terms of the draft. There's a lot of speculation that this draft is going to, was already going to be college heavy. That's just kind of the way the class was, especially at the top. The best players are, are college kids this year. Uh, but does everything that's happening make teams go more for a college player who's a little more polished, a little less risky than a high school player? Um, all of these things are unknown, but Joe and I still had to go forward with, with the exercise. Obviously, they're always going to be unknown. So the way we did it is any college player that is in 
the top 175 of the BA 200 or BA 500, we just assume that is going to get drafted and signed. It will not be that cut and dried. Uh, it in fact, isn't that cut and dry anyway, because one of those players is Tyler Brown, Vanderbilt's closer, um, who I believe is number 90. And he has already said that he intends to return for a second shot at his junior season, I guess. Um, so we counted him because he's made this public declaration or intention that we counted him as a returner. Everyone else in the top 175 we counted as, as a departure. Um, and then high school players, we didn't drill down that specifically. I know who has good recruiting classes. I rank the top 15 on signing day. I'm in the process of expanding the 2020 recruiting rankings to a full top 25. Um, look for that at the end of this month. Uh, but I have a general idea of who has good classes and who doesn't. And for the most part, we didn't really drill down into the, well, you know, is Texas really going to get Jared Kelly? Probably not, but will they get um, X, Y, and Z? You know, who knows? You know, we, we, didn't, we didn't really go at it quite that specifically yet. We'll kind of let the draft fall where it will on the high school players. And then we intend to come back and do this whole exercise again after the draft and a couple other times throughout the off season, just to reflect, um, you know, various developments and any transfers, any draft, free agent signings, whatever. Um, we'll come back and look at this a couple more times throughout the off season. So for now, we're just counting on some players leaving that are currently ranked that way. Uh, counting on pretty much everyone else coming back. Seniors, we, unless they'd made a public declaration, didn't make a whole lot of, like, we didn't include them in any lists that, that we put together. Uh, if you click on the, the capsules at baseballamerica.com, they list notable returners and notable departures. Seniors, for the most part, are absent from that unless they made it public what they were doing at this point, and most of them have not. Um, frankly, there are definitely impact seniors out there, but for the most part, that's not the most impactful players on a team generally. Um, you know, certainly they're, you know, guys like Brian Klein at Texas Tech, uh, they're, they're going to make a difference, but right now it's just really hard to evaluate where, where they're going to end up. So we'll, we'll come back at this again, again, I guess in June, uh, after the draft. Uh, so that's kind of the way Joe and I went about it. Joe, was there anything else you wanted to, to add to our procedural um, of how we, how we went about this? I think, I think you covered it. I mean, I think the, the hardest thing too, just, I guess, is a, to give you a peek inside our mind as we went through this, one of the more difficult things to do was ranking these teams based on incomplete information because when we typically do a preseason ranking, what they what a team did last year doesn't really matter in a vacuum. What matters is, okay, if you if you went to Omaha and you bring back a majority of your best players from that team, well, we're going to have you ranked high because those players are good and we they proved they were good because they went to Omaha. Just the fact that you went to Omaha itself isn't a reason to rank you the next year. However, this year is a little bit different. One, because we're only two months removed from having actual games being played. So 
what they what teams did last year ends up having to matter a little bit here. And you see that with a couple of teams in this ranking, a, a team like Pepperdine, a team like Central Florida that we didn't have ranked coming into last year, proved themselves, Long Beach, I guess, is in this this group as well, proved themselves throughout 2020 and now go into 2021 getting a little more benefit of the doubt. But the, the trouble with that is, you know, that they get that benefit of the doubt, but we honestly don't know how the rest of the season would have played out. And, you know, we'll never know that. Even if they come out in 2021 and one of those teams falls on their face, it doesn't mean they wouldn't have accomplished great things in, in 2020. We'll just never know that. The other part of that is with some of the more established brands, which I'm sure we might get into in more depth as we go along, you know, they might bring back pretty similar teams in 2021 and they didn't really have an opportunity to prove to us whether they were any better or worse than they were in 2019. So there are a couple of teams that we have reservations about that maybe they would have proved those reservations wrong, you know, throughout the 2020 season, but we never had that opportunity to be proven right or wrong on those. And so we have to kind of carry some of those reservations over into 2021 because we haven't seen evidence to the contrary of that. So that's what really made this top 25 difficult. In a lot of ways, it's not that much different than a typical preseason top 25 because we're talking about who's go, who's staying, who's going, who's coming in. But there's the extra added piece of, well, we, we didn't really have the benefit of, you know, a team might be bringing a ton of guys back, but what did that team amount to in 2020? We don't know. So there's a little bit of an incomplete information piece there that made this a little extra difficult, but I think we – we mostly did a good job kind of allowing for that. And like you mentioned, after the draft, we'll take another shot at this when we specifically know kind of what the senior situation is. Like, I think that's for a lot of these teams, the biggest question mark they have is when you have productive seniors, what's going to happen to them. I think about a team like Oklahoma. I think about a team like Miami with Brian Van Bell, guys like that. I think that's going to, we're, we're going to see a decent amount of shifting after the draft. And then at, we'll, we'll have to do less of the projecting and, and, and working with less incomplete information once we have that piece nailed down. I would also say, along with that, that the you know, nothing has really materially materially happened since you know the last time we saw these teams play on the 11th of, of March, the 10th of March in, in some teams' cases. But that's, you know, so I, I just feel like the recency bias, the what we saw in 2020, even in an abbreviated format, is probably weighing on our minds more than it normally would. Because normally, you know, we would have, you know, reaction to the draft. We would have reaction to uh, fall ball to play into this, but minimally or in reaction to development you saw over the summer for players that played summer ball. Uh, but minimally, even if you know, you look at the, the eight for Omaha that I traditionally do right after the world series ends, even at that point, you know, the season has just ended, but at least I know what the draft results are. At least that is, you know, I can, I can already start separating what a team did that season from what I think the, from, you know, there's this, this cutoff point because I, I can already see like, okay, well, these five players are gone 
and also their top three recruits are gone. So now you have to think about the team without those players. I don't have to do that yet. Like in, in my head, I can say, well, okay, we're taking Spencer Torkelson off of ASU, but it's a little harder to really do that right now because I haven't like seen that happen yet. He hasn't been picked by a team yet. We haven't had that that situation yet. Him, you know, I, I can't connect him to the Tigers. And even if you are very confident that they're taking him, like, okay, can you can't, where's Garrett Mitchell going? I can't connect Garrett Mitchell to anything other than UCLA. So how do we think about UCLA without Garrett Mitchell? My mind has a, a little bit harder time doing that. So I do think in some respects, the, the rankings are a little more related to that than uh, they would be if the draft, you know, once we get past the draft even. So yeah, we'll see, we'll see what they look like after that. But, um, you know, also maybe we'll find that they don't adjust that much. Maybe we'll find that, that we uh, were able to, to get into that already. So those are, that's how we went about this. You can see the full ranking at baseballamerica.com. I would encourage you to check it out. Uh, there's a lot of info in there. Again, we have all the BA 500 recruits a school has who are expecting to return we're expecting to leave why you know a little bit about why we think they're still going to be good next year and uh so yeah check all of that out but uh let's let's get to the rankings a little bit here joe and they start like they ended and that is with florida at number one the gators uh we are projecting will lose tommy mace and jack leftwich who were so good for them at the front of the rotation if you listen to last friday's podcast with austin laneworthy he was talking about how it just felt like they never had a bad weekend start. Well, a lot of that has to do with Mason Leftwich. Uh, but even without those two guys, Florida has kind of an insane level of talent again. Hunter Barco, who was so good uh, as a freshman and in high school, just a very prominent player throughout his amateur career, uh, can lead the rotation. They'll have, they have plenty of veterans in the bullpen that can slide into the rotation. They want to go that route. They've got incoming guys. Uh, they have a junior college transfer, Franco Alamon, uh, who probably steps right into the rotation. They're not going to lack for pitching under Kevin O'Sullivan. And the lineup is back uh, potentially completely. Um, they do have a couple seniors there, Kirby McMullen, Austin Laneworthy. McMullen has already said that he intends to come back. You heard Austin say that he hasn't figured that out yet. Uh, but otherwise, there's you know, everyone should be back in the lineup. That includes Judd Fabian, who is a potential top 10 pick next year in center field. Um, you know, Josh Rivera was really good as a freshman at shortstop. They've got, they've got a lot going on there. And so the Gators were, uh, were kind of a clear pick for, for Joe and I at number one. Yeah, I think that's right. We, we both had them had them number one. And I think the difference between a team like Florida at number one and then our number two team, Texas Tech, is kind of the development of some of those younger guys that Florida had in, in that freshman class and, and the underclassmen more generally, maybe a little bit further along than some of what we uh, what we saw from guys at, at Texas Tech. And there's also the piece of, you know, the concern of Florida losing its two, you know, top weekend starting pitchers and the tradition Florida has 
save for, you know, 2019 being a little bit of a, a blip there, but they, they were back on track within 2020. But Florida's track record of, of being able to slot in new arms at, at, at a high level year after year after year, Texas Tech, for the record, I mean, does a pretty good job of, as I wrote in the little write-up for the top 25, that they always find the right pieces to the puzzle in the end. But you look at their pitching staff and you, at different points of the season, you're always kind of like, yeah, I'm not really sure what it amounts to. And so if you're going to take Clayton Beater out of the, out of the, the, out of that, and then Bryce Bonin out of that. And then there's a senior in John McMillan who, you know, remains to be seen what he ends up deciding to do. You know, it's a Texas Tech team that ends up kind of having to retool from a pitching standpoint again in 2021. And while I'm confident they'll figure it out, I feel more confident that Florida's going to come right out of the gate kind of knowing who they are from that standpoint. Yeah, and I'll also note that Florida has the most uh, most most commits in the BA 500 of any team right now. They have 11. Um, you can uh, you can see them all uh, over over on the website and a couple of places. I guess you can check out the BA 500 itself, uh, which continues to be updated with reports. By the way, they're about halfway to the 500. The, the they should have a bunch more coming online soon. Uh, or you can check it out in the the top 25 itself. The um, the point of that is that even if you subtract a guy like Zach Veen, who is projected to be a top 10 pick, Florida's recruiting class is going to be elite again. They're um, they haven't had or they're they've had what like I think it's I wish I had this in front of me right now. I believe it's eight straight top five classes in Gainesville. This will be another one. Uh, it's really good. And I like they'll they might lose more than Veen to the draft. It's still going to be really good. So they're they're looking at another infusion of talent with an already very very talented team. I don't worry about the pitching. Hunter Barco can pitch on Friday nights. You know they have any number of guys: Speck, Scott, Pogue, who can step into the rotation. Um, to say nothing of maybe a Jordan Butler. Uh, so they've got, they've got options and they got a lot of talent. So the Gators are, are very much a national title favorite next year. And, and then, yeah, the, the Red Raiders finished the season at number two. That's where they are again. Um, there's just a lot of depth there. You saw what they were capable of this year. A lot of that can come back. Coming into the season, we did not realize Clay Beater was going to be the ace and pitch as well as he did. Um, while replacing him and Bonin will be key for them to do, they do return Micah Dallas, who was a Friday starter in a team that went to Omaha in 2019. So you know, he's back. Mason Montgomery is really good. Uh, they also have a, a good-looking recruiting class coming in. You know, Tech just seems to have plenty of pitching year after year. It might not be quite as high octane as what Florida does. It might not be the quite the draft prospects as what Florida does year after year, but Texas Tech also has not been wanting for pitching for the last several years. So I would I would expect them to to be quite quite all right even without um, two guys from the rotation and regardless of what what a guy like John McMillan does. So they uh, they also look look to be very strong from there. And then we had UCLA at three, um, which, you know, I think it's just a general reflection of the talent out in Westwood. That That's just kind of what happens out there uh, these days. 
They're, they're a very, very talented team. Um, and we've talked about it here on the podcast before, just right now in the, uh, in the mode of a, a reload more than a rebuild ever. And, you know, they have a lot coming back in the, the lineup. It was a very young lineup this year outside of Garrett Mitchell. So they should have those guys back. The, the pitching staff, uh, you know, should again be very strong. Again, that's a, I don't worry about pitching when John Savage is there. Uh, Zach Petway should be back to to lead the rotation and um, they might have to replace Holden Powell at the back end of the bullpen, but they still have plenty of depth out there as well. So like the Bruins for next year, Ole Miss uh, who rocketed into the top five start of the season, uh, they're number four, Gunnar Hogland, uh, Doug McKaysey, Derek Diamond, they should all be back in the rotation next year. They have to replace Anthony Servideo at shortstop, maybe Tyler Keenan at third base. Otherwise, the lineup looks pretty similar. Uh, so very excited about their their potential next year. And then number five, Virginia, uh, we have as the ACC favorite. And, and Joe, this is a Virginia team that kind of was robbed this year of getting back to regionals for the first time in a couple of years, but did seem to be building towards something, especially when you consider all the young pieces uh, they, they've been putting together uh, on the mound and in the lineup. Yeah, there, theirs is a classic case of where they might look a little bit out of place to an outside observer, just given that, you know, this team hasn't been to the postseason in several years. And I think that's where not having the 2020 season really throws that off because, you know, we had Virginia at, at 17 to end the season. I think if the season plays out, they're higher than that, at least at various points, if not necessarily the end. But I think they, they climb higher than that at some point. And they, this ends up looking more in line with what should be expected. But as it is, they're, they're a program that is really doing a fantastic job of late of attracting the types of players who typically sign. You know, it was Mike Vassell and Chris Newell and now Nate Savino. And then now Nick Bitsko is a guy who I saw in your chat today, you, you got asked about, and there's a chance that, that he comes to, he reclassified. And, you know, typically that is at least uh, a somewhat positive sign that he's at least considering. I mean, you, you want to, you generally don't reclassify. There are some guys that reclassify wholly for draft purposes, but generally you don't reclassify without, if, if you skip an entire grade of school, generally you're thinking, about coming on some level. You know, we saw this with J.B. Bukowskis, uh, and he, of course, wound up in North Carolina. It, it's a little different. Like, Savino enrolls a semester early. Like, those guys obviously are doing it entirely for school. If you come an entire year early, um, it's not completely for school, but you also have to be well aware of what that might mean for you from a school standpoint if you do that. And uh, the fact that he did that and is a Virginia commit and Virginia has this long track record of getting guys like that to campus. I think you have to take a long look at that, but at the same time, he's, you know, where he's ranked in the 500 right now suggests he's a first round pick um, and MLB teams will do their best to make him a first round pick. I, I have no doubt about that. So we'll, we'll see where that one goes in a month. But I mean, the, the thing about it is with Virginia too, is that, you know, I, and I tend to be someone who is a little bit slower to play teams that 
the, the optimism about them is kind of all about this young, unproven talent. And some of this talent isn't necessarily unproven. I mean, Nate Savino in a small sample size looked pretty good this year. Mike Vassell looked much improved over where he was as a freshman. Chris Newell obviously started hitting the minute he, he got there. I tend to slower play those types of teams. That's not all Virginia is here. There's also a pretty decent number of guys who have been in this program for a while who have been pretty productive, whether you're talking about Griff McGarry on the mound or you're talking about Zach Geloff on the infield, Nick Kent. Those guys have, have proven themselves in multiple years to, to be at a high level, and that kind of gives Virginia a depth component that it's not just these high-end guys they're bringing to campus. That might be the biggest reason for the optimism here, but beyond that, there is good depth here for Virginia. So I think it's well-deserved. They're a favorite in the ACC, and it, you know they're able to take a little bit of advantage of the fact that it it does feel like a little bit of a transitional year in the ACC in some ways with a team like Miami, perhaps, you know, missing a window in 2020, no fault of their own, obviously, but missing a window in 2020 to take a step back in 21. Louisville's going to be doing some retooling to a certain degree. So Virginia may be able to step into that vacuum a little bit, would have been good on their own, but they're able to step into that power vacuum a little bit to be the best team in the ACC, perhaps due to some some reshuffling there in the conference, but I'm definitely excited to see what it all amounts to in the end. Yeah. The ACC was interesting uh, when we were going through this exercise. I'm not sure Joe actually agreed with me on the ACC uh, much along the way. Uh, We obviously got to a a point of agreement, but I don't know that you had Virginia as your top ACC team. I don't know that you had Louisville as your number two ACC team. And that's, uh, that's how it is here. Louisville comes in at number eight despite the fact they're going to lose Detmers and Miller from their rotation and that Luke Smith is certainly going to be, um, I I imagine he'll have an opportunity to sign if he so chooses um, either in the draft or as a, as a non-drafted free agent. So they have a lot to, to replace on the mound uh, to say nothing of, of Michael Kiernan in, uh, in their bullpen. Um, But they also have, you know, three potential first-round picks in 2021 offensively in Levi Usher, Alex Benellis, and Henry Davis behind the plate. So it's going to be an interesting Louisville team. I trust that they'll work the rotation out. Um, Prosecchi kind of got his feet wet as the midweek starter this year. Uh, Jack Perkins, they'll get him back from, from injury. He missed this year due to Tommy Chan. But, you know, they're going to have to – to find some some things uh, on the pitching staff, but that lineup gives them a chance to be a special team, and it's not like they don't have talent on the mound. They just kind of have to find a way to to put it all together, and I would figure that Roger Williams and Dan McDonald will, will figure that out sooner than later next season. Yeah, I mean, you're right that we, we had some disagreements there in the ACC, not so much about the teams that were involved, but I did have Virginia as my top ACC team, but I, I didn't have Louisville as my next best. And I, can, I, I see the logic, and obviously we came to an agreement on that, but um, you know, I'm, I'm going to be in a little bit of a wait-and-see mode with Louisville in, in, in 2021. And I, I wonder if the end result of Louisville ends up being a little bit like in 20, I believe it was 17 when they did not host. I, I get the years run together a little bit, but there was a one year they didn't host. They were no, that was 18. 17 18. is McKay's. Strategy. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes, yes. So 18, they go to Lubbock, and you know, like everyone who goes to Lubbock for regional, typically it doesn't go well. So that you know, I wonder if that's kind of the ultimate. I, I wonder if that ultimately ends up being the fate of this 
2021 team, that's nothing to be ashamed of. Like the fact that you're down years, that would amount to a down year tells you how good you are. But I, I do agree that the, the ceiling is higher here than I was probably originally giving him credit for in large part because of that position player group. You know, Levi Usher is a guy we only briefly got introduced to and, and Alex Pinellas is a guy that's easy to forget about because he didn't really play in, in 2020. So those are a couple of names that, that weren't necessarily on the front of mind to say nothing of Luke Brown and um, Henry Davis. They may or may not get Zach Britton back, you know, from a draft standpoint. So there, there are interesting pieces there to be sure on the position player side, just maybe not necessarily use. That's not the way we're used to talking about Louisville. I think is part of it too. They're have traditionally been pitching heavy, at least as of late they have been. So there's, there's that as well. I, a little bit further down, I also liked, you know, Duke is a team that, that kind of keeps popping up in, in this portion of the rankings. We have them at, at 14, and that's, I think, just a lot of respect for the way that they're doing business now. And that was a team that, that I think maybe I initially had higher than you. We ended up settling them in the, around where I had them to begin with. But they're a team that's kind of just a, you know, a, a, a team that you just give the benefit of the doubt about now we, we had our reservations about them a little bit coming into this season, just because we looked at, you know, we looked at some of the things like, for example, like who is their Friday guy? Like Bryce Jarvis is a nice piece, but you know, is, is he, you know, what, what level of Friday guy is he? And then you find out like, Oh, okay, actually he's one of the best in the country. And so those are the types of things that this program kind of does year after year. So in 2021, is it, is it Cooper Stinson? You know, maybe probably, you know, um, so they're an interesting team for me. And then, of course, you start to get into teams that, you know, like NC State, who you just know are going to be in the top 25. And, you know, Georgia Tech brings back a lot. So I think the ACC is a really interesting league. And I wonder if it's the type of league that maybe if Virginia jumps out and is clearly the best team in that conference. But everything else might be a little bit interchangeable to a certain degree. And, and a couple of teams we haven't even mentioned yet. One is North Carolina, which got off to a slow start and never, you know, hadn't get, gotten that chance to recover yet. What are they going to look like? And also Boston College, which has kind of been pointing at 2021 as the breakthrough season. And, and you have to wonder, at least I wonder, how much that gets stunted a little bit by the fact that there wasn't a 2020. You know, they were, they were pointing at these 2021s, these draft prospects, you know, led by a guy like Cody Morsetti or um, Sal Freelick, guys like that. I mean, without a 2021, are they – as ready in, well, I'm sorry, without a 2020, are they as ready in 2021 to compete at a high level? And the answer might be yes, but, you know, BC is a team that um, maybe gets hurt a little bit by not having that season, but could very well be in this conversation once we get to next season. Yeah, that's a really good call with Boston College. I, I don't know precisely how that affects them. And then you also wonder with them and with a lot of Northern teams, if their kids aren't really able to play summer ball. And I think BC is going to be hurt by that. And, and many Northeastern schools are going to be hurt by that more than some other schools. If, if summer ball mostly is local leagues using local players, if that's who's able to play as opposed to the national leagues, um, well, that is not good for anyone in the Northeast because of those leagues. I mean, Joe would know better than I. He's running our tracker of, of, of summer league statuses, but that's where the cancellations are, you know? And so if, if Boston College, you know, it, if, if their players aren't getting that developmental time this summer, what does that mean? Um, I'm going to be very interested to see BC next year anyway. I think they're going to be really good. They've got a lot of talent, but that is, that is something to see. And then 
North Carolina, you know, I think when we think of more recency bias stuff, we think of like, oh, well, the last thing we saw from this team is really good. So they'll probably be really good next year. And, you know, we talk about how, you know, we found a spot in the rankings for Pepperdine because they had proven that, or at least they had shown to to this point that they were, they were meriting it and now they can bring the whole team back if they want. And well, the flip side exists too and what we saw from the last thing we saw from north carolina was them getting swept by notre dame to start acc play so that was was not a good note to end on and frankly they don't have a ton of draft concerns um they can bring most of the team back they have a really good recruiting class so i mean if if you want to include north carolina here like there's very much a case to be made for that but I also, right now, when I look at UNC, I don't know what to make of it just because I didn't know what to make of it this season. You know, and if you take Aaron Sabato, their one big, huge draft concern out of the lineup, what are you left with offensively? Um, that has to get worked out. But, you know, I mean, Sabato is also a, a draft-eligible sophomore. And, you know, we've talked a lot about seniors and what they're going to do. I, what draft-eligible sophomores are going to do is going to be very interesting as well. Um, because if you're not in the first round, but you think of yourself as a first round pick and you're a draft eligible sophomore, you know, that's already a, a situation where you see guys return to school in a normal year. What does that look like this year? I'm not, I, I don't know if that's how Sabato is looking at it or not, but like, that's a, I mean, it's a real situation for a lot of those, those sophomore guys. Um, so it's something that, that UNC could look really good next year if they figure some of these things out. Uh, but, you know, the, the, again, just the, last, the last look at UNC was, was not a good one. And I, I think that does kind of cloud what we're looking at here. Uh, and I'll be interested to see if, if our opinion changes on them a little bit as we, as we go through the draft process and beyond. Yeah, the, the draft-eligible sophomore point is, is a good one not only just – I think specifically there are a couple of pitchers, and not only is it because they do have the extra year of leverage, it's also because this is such a college pitching heavy draft, you could see a scenario where you can come back and be kind of the same pitcher you already are and maybe just improve your draft stock by virtue of being in a different draft year. And I think that leads to a conversation that I, that I wanted to have about some teams where there's a lot of volatility with where we have them ranked right now. I don't know that this team is necessarily one of them, but one of the more high-profile draft eligible sophomores is Cole Henry at LSU, and we have them ranked six. And I think, you know, certainly they have the potential to live up to that ranking in a big way if, if he's back in the mix. But you go a little bit further down, and, you know, you start talking about Miami with Slade Sacconi. And they maybe are, for not just Slade Sacconi reasons, but for many reasons, perhaps the team that has the most volatility in this top 25 because they have – several draft guys, but they've got some fringy draft guys and you can come up with a lot of reasons why they get some of those draft guys back. So Slate Ciccone could come back to get into a different draft and and have a junior season on campus. Alex Terrell is kind of in a fringy part of the draft order, according to the BA 500. And he's shown a lot of power, but teams maybe want to see him be a more complete hitter. Does he get drafted in a five round draft? Freddie Zamora at one point was looking like a first round pick. Then he gets suspended. Then he gets injured. And he doesn't have a 2020 season. And then, of course, it gets, it gets canceled. So he, he wasn't going to have one regardless, I guess. So does he try to come back to get himself back into the first round? And so if they get 
and that's to say nothing of Brian Van Bell in the seniors issue. We talked about that earlier. So Miami's a team if, you know, even if McMahon and, and Sacconi go just because they're first round or in Sacconi's case, second round pick, then you start to, like, they get Zamora back and Terrell back and Brent, Brian Van Bell comes back and they're probably better than the 24th ranked team in the country considering all the guys they're going to bring back anyway. But if they lose all of those guys, they're maybe not a top 25 team at all. So maybe they are, maybe they're just sticking at 24, but, but they're a team I think that has a high level of volatility here. Oklahoma, I think is another one for different reasons. Theirs is more like, you know, you're losing Cavalli in all likelihood. What do Levi Prater and Dane Acker do? They're both kind of on the, what I would say fringe in lean in terms of the draft versus fringe out. But if they lose all three of those guys, they're probably not the number 10 team in the country, which is where we have them now. But if they get both of those guys back, 10 maybe is a little conservative. I don't know. They also have questions about their seniors. They very, a lot of their seniors very publicly, at least through the Oklahoma official, the official Oklahoma baseball account, I think that's important here, announced that they were coming back. But it's one thing to do that in the immediate aftermath of the season being canceled and you're kind of feeling your oats and wanting to be rah-rah about, yeah, we're going to come back in 2021. It's quite another when you face the fact that you're going to have to pay for school next year. Maybe you're going to have to compete for more playing time next year. You've got this $20,000 offer on hand and Hey, maybe it's a team that you've always wanted to play for. You know, you just never know what those factors are going to be for a player. So maybe Oklahoma doesn't get all those seniors back. And if they lose, you know, two out of the three or all three of their rotation guys and, they lose a couple of these seniors they thought they might get back, even with a big recruiting class. Like I said, they're probably not the top 10 team in the country. So, I mean, those are a few of the teams I think that have a high level of volatility. And I think you can kind of file places like Long Beach and, and Pepperdine and UCF a little bit into this because I feel like we didn't necessarily get the full picture of who they are. We're giving them the benefit of the doubt. But it also wouldn't be a big surprise if, okay, maybe they kind of caught lightning in a bottle in 2020 and can't, can't reproduce that. The other team I would add to that is Michigan. I can tell you Jeff Criswell gets drafted and presumably signs, and I can't tell you for sure what happens beyond that. You know, Jesse Franklin has been a top prospect going back to his high school days, uh, but he was injured this season, didn't play at all. Uh, Jordan Nuogu is like very fringy in terms of is he coming back, like wh- where we have him in the rankings in terms of will he be picked, will he not be picked. Uh, what is he thinking about? Like, if he was a fifth round pick, would that be good enough for him? Does he want to come back and try again? And, um, you know, potentially, I, I don't know where he is academically, but, you know, the, any of these guys who are juniors, they come back one more year, you know, they might finish a degree. And finishing a degree from Michigan, like, that's a that's a significant thing. Uh, so, you know, how does that weigh on on those guys? And, then like Jack Blomgren and Joe Donovan were two players that we were fully expecting that Michigan was going to, you know, probably say goodbye to this year uh, in a 40 round draft, but in a five round draft, that's probably not going to happen. So, you know, where, where does all of that leave the Wolverines? I don't know. I'm very excited to find out or very interested in finding out like what that looks like. And then of course, you know, on field in 2020, uh, Michigan was about as volatile as anyone. You know, that, that's a team that uh, played like the number one team and also, you know, didn't play like the number one team at all at, at times and finished up just a game above 500. So, you know, I, that, that's going to be a, a fascinating case. Um, I'm, I'm very interested to see 
uh, where, where that one goes. So, you know, they, they are maybe at the top of the volatility list for me, along with Miami. Uh, you know, the other thing about Miami is they have a large, good recruiting class, but it's also full of a lot of guys that are kind of in a dangerous area in terms of will they be selected and will they sign. So, you know, what Miami's recruiting class to, looks like today might be a little different than what it looks like when they get to campus. So that there, there are a couple reasons to watch Miami right now. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're a very interesting team down there at the bottom of the rankings, uh, along with Arizona State, who I think has a little less volatility overall. You can say goodbye to Torkelson and Alika Williams. Um, Gage Workman. But beyond that, like you're looking at Trevor Halver. Is he gone? Is he staying? Any number of their pitchers, are they gone? Are they staying? Uh, but they, they, I just feel like there's more depth there to, to work with for the Sun Devils and that their recruiting class is, uh, is also very talented and maybe just a little, little less uh, uncertain than what, than what you see in Miami. But those two teams, we've linked them all year long. Might as well link them again here at the start of 2021, and we've got them back-to-back in this uh, never-too-early top 25. Yeah, funny how that how that works. But just quickly on Arizona State, I, they were one of the teams as I was doing this exercise where I expected to to dislike what they brought back more than I did. I actually, as I was going back and looking at what they bring back, it um, it, it was it, it was better than I kind of expected it to be, and kind of talked myself into like oh, you know maybe maybe even twenty three is a little little low on them. A lot of it, though, to be fair, is on the pitching side, and we really were still trying to figure out who they were going to be from from a pitching standpoint. So maybe. Maybe that optimism is well-founded. Maybe it's not. We'll have to see in, in 2021. Yeah, so the uh, the never-too-early top 25, very interesting process. Uh, we're we're going to have to, again, see where it takes us. We're going to update this next month after the draft, and then we'll figure out exactly when we're going to update it again. I believe we have September scheduled, and then we'll kind of see if uh, – if there's a fall ball that, that merits an update or if we just at that point take it into the preseason top 25, we'll, we'll see where it goes from there. But I had fun doing it. Joe had fun doing it. Hopefully you have fun reading it and thinking about what can come next year. I think we all kind of need a little bit of that uh, in these times. Joe, beyond the top 25 and the draft news, um, you know, we had a, a couple other uh, items of note, I feel like. Um, that that we we, we might want to just go note that note them to to check them out on on the website. Uh, last week's coaching confidential, I ranked the uh, or I, I had the the coaches vote on who had the best player development facilities in the nation. Arkansas uh, finished number one, and they have some new development uh, happening in, in Fayetteville to to improve all those facilities even more. Joe wrote about Evan Porter, Nebraska Omaha's coach, who uh, has led a, a nomadic baseball lifestyle. Uh, that, that's an interesting story. And then you can also check out our um, 2020 coaching carousel tracker. I got that live on the website following the news that UAB coach Brian Shoup has retired after 14 years uh, at, the bla- at the helm of the Blazers and more than 1,000 wins overall. He, of course... Um, been uh, just a 
standout coach at Birmingham for a really long time, both at UAB and at Birmingham Southern, where he won uh, an NAIA national title. And you saw a lot of a lot of people around the coaching ranks, uh, you know, just talking about how good of a guy he is and, and how happy they are that they they get to know him and, and wishing him luck in retirement. So he is one of the more prominent names that that has moved in, in the the coaching carousel uh, to this point this year. Not a whole lot of openings. We don't expect there to be a whole lot of openings. Uh, several of the openings like UAB will probably just be filled by interim head coaches. Um, I think if UAB actually wants to open its job next year, if uh, for, for whatever reason they don't want to go with Perry Roth, who is the interim coach for next season, uh, they're going to get a lot of interest, but we'll, we'll see uh, about that next year. This year we're expecting uh, a little bit less as everyone just kind of tries to ride out the, uh, the, the aftershocks of the pandemic. Yeah, I think that's, I, I think that's to be expected. I think it's going to be, um, you know, the, the, the interim tags just kind of make some sense from the standpoint of, you know, how do you even, and there's actually been some interesting reporting done by people in college football and college basketball about how you conduct a coaching search in a, in a pandemic. So it's, it's not an easy thing to do. And so that just makes sense and that we don't know. It, it kind of makes sense for continuity's sake to have the interims just because, you know, these coaches are going to have to communicate with their players mostly remotely for now until, you know, probably into the fall at some point. So I think having continuity there makes a lot of sense. UAB, um, well, first of all, on Brian Shoup, I, I tweeted this last night. And uh, my favorite Brian Shoup fact is about when he was at Birmingham Southern. They had a weird, a weird dalliance in Division One. They had two years as an independent and then that three years in the Big South before ultimately dropping back down to Division Two and then eventually Division Three And uh, you know, Shoup led them up into Division One, and then actually in his – their last year in Division One was his last year at Birmingham Southern before he went to UAB. But three years in the Big South, they won the league twice. Their first year, they went 47-18 and 18 overall and went 21-3 and three in conference. And we've seen some similar things to this. Steve Owens at Bryant comes to mind. But nothing quite that extreme. I mean, Bryant had a little more of an on-ramp than that. And so just kind of incredible what he was doing at Birmingham Southern. And he's had some really good teams at UAB and some teams that I think were regional caliber teams that just didn't quite have the metrics to get there. I think of their 20, I believe it was their 2014 team, which had just a really ridiculous pitching staff, ridiculously good pitching staff. And, and they just, I think they went 20 and 10 in Conference USA and, and the numbers just didn't add up for them to get into the postseason. I thought they were a regional caliber team then. So it's had a lot of success at UAB and, and more broadly on that job you mentioned, I think, I think it, it would be a job that would have a lot of interest. There's obviously it's in a good place with, with Birmingham and the, in the deep South more broadly. So I think there, you're right. And there would be a lot of interest in that opening. It's, it's the conference USA piece of it is, is something that's not as attractive as it was at other times in the league's history. And perhaps we'll have more on that this off season as we kind of, I'm doing my conference stock watches and we've, we've talked about doing some more deep dives on, recent histories of conferences and, and what kind of all goes into that. And Conference USA is maybe the most interesting of the bunch because that membership has changed so wildly over the last decade and has gone from basically being what the American Athletic Conference is right now uh, to being something less than that, I guess, to put it to put it kindly. So the Conference USA piece, you might have thought of that as, well, it's, it's a job in a multi-bid league, and CUSA can still certainly be that. Anytime you've got a Southern Miss 
in your league, which you, you feel pretty strongly about. And then, you know, a program like Rice that at least has the history there, you feel confident it can be a, you know, two-bid league. FAU, I guess, is, is in the mix there as well. But it's certainly not that year after year after year as it was throughout most of its history as a baseball league. So that's, that's an interesting part of it. But, but I think you're right. It's a job that, that I think we'd see some pretty highly regarded coaches be interested in because I think there's a lot to it. Yeah, in theory, Conference USA should be a multi-bid league. Um, and, you know, we, we do intend to, to dive into more of that to, in the, the weeks and months to come. Um, but yeah, the, the UAB job theoretically should be uh, a very attractive one. We'll, we'll see if they open it up. You know, Perry Roth has a lot of respect uh, from, from around the coaching community as well. So we'll, uh, we'll see if it even comes to that point. But if it does, you know, that is something that the people are going to be looking at. And, you know, I, on the carousel tracker, I have St. John's and Holy Cross uh, is technically being open, but it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of coaching searching going on at either of those places. I mean, that still can change. I would be surprised if it happened at St. John's particularly because Mike Hampton has been at St. John's for like 18 years as an assistant to Ed Blankmeyer before stepping in uh, this season as the interim head coach when uh, Blankmeyer took a job with the Mets in January. Uh, similar situation at, at Holy Cross, just without the lengthiness of Ed Kovacs' uh, tenure as an assistant under Greg DiCenzo. Um, DiCenzo took a job uh, as an Indians minor league manager. Uh, again, I believe it was in January, either January or February. And so those places may continue with them in interim tags. Maybe one of them takes an interim tag off. We'll see. Uh, there are some legitimately open jobs out there. Um, best of luck to everyone trying to figure out how to navigate a search uh, in these environments. It, it's uh, it's not going to be easy, I, I would guess. And then there's also just the added complication of if you're a new coach coming in uh, with all of these various roster um, challenges, the the crunch of of returning seniors and how do you manage that? How do you manage your incoming class? How do you get up to speed without being able to see these kids play the summer in, in large respect um, or recruits play, you know, that there, there's a lot that that's going to go into making a coaching change uh, completely in this, uh, in this environment. So continuity is, is probably going to reign supreme in a lot of these places, but we'll see where things go uh, from here. There are, I think nine, job openings overall some of them there, there have been nine changes this year uh which is definitely way 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 down from what we've seen in the last few years somehow so, it's more than i would have assumed we'd have though somehow nine well so it, it like helps when you started with like four to begin yeah, with as fair. i recall because uh pacific holy cross i think it was yeah pacific holy cross charleston southern uh, and St. John's were all open at the start. They all yeah. went into this year with interims. And then Lafayette was a planned retirement at the start of the season. So there were five jobs that were coming open or were open already, no matter what. And then we've added four more. So it does help when you have five. Cause yeah, nine does feel like more than you would expect, but the, a, a few of those had, the opening was created uh, before the entirety of the, the situation started. 
So we'll continue to, to track any, any news uh, as, as it continues uh, to, to come out here, um, here on the podcast and over at baseballamerica.com. But like I mentioned, we are, we are going twice a week with the podcasts here uh, during the off season. The second podcast comes out on Friday and is uh, Joe and me rewatching a, uh, a classic game in college baseball history and discussing it with uh, with someone who is a part of it. So, Joe, why don't you tell the people what we're planning on doing this week? We're going to be watching the 2013 Raleigh Super Regional between NC State and Rice. It's a, a fun game in terms of, you know, some of the players you get to see. Unfortunately, it's, it's not a Carlos Rodon start for NC State, so you don't get to see him, but you do get to see Trey Turner, uh, you know, Brett Austin, a lot of really talented NC State players, kind of a typical – Outside of those guys, I mean, that, that is clearly like the best class of players that NC State has, has had maybe ever. But beyond that, there are a lot of what I would call typical NC State players on this roster where it's like guys that you remember from a college standpoint. They may or may not have had have minor league careers, but you mostly remember them as really productive college players. And NC State does that as well as just about anybody. So there's that component. It's also just a really good game. It's a long extra inning game. So there's that kind of prepare yourself for, for that. But it's also interesting if you're, if you're really interested in the ebb and flow of speaking of conference USA, the, the ebb and flow of, of programs and, and how that fits in the big picture of the ebb and flow of conferences, this 2014, uh, 2013, pardon me, rice team is interesting because it was really one of the last rice teams that was really felt Omaha caliber. Now rice would host again, in, at least in 15 and, and maybe even later than that, but and that they had some teams that played well in the postseason, but this this 13 Rice team coming up against a lot of other teams in Super Regionals could have gotten to Omaha. It was a really talented group, had good pitching as as, as Rice mostly did, even in those years. Uh, so this is interesting to me as a team that that had a chance to get there for a Rice program that that hasn't been since 2008. It felt like one of the last best chances for a team to do so under Wayne Graham and they end up losing the super regional two to nothing. So they, I guess they really weren't that in it, but you know, this game goes a different way and you're in a game three, you just never know. So it's kind of an interesting historical artifact in terms of, you know, a rice program trying to cling to, you know, its history and its past and the success that it's had in the past and live up to that uh, and, and not quite being able to do so. And an NC state team really making the most of, like I said, probably the, the best class of players the program has ever seen. So that's uh, available on YouTube. You can find it linked over at baseballamerica.com or you can uh, type it into to the YouTube search bar yourself. Uh, you'll find it either way. I, I, I feel good about that. Um, so we'll, we'll come back here Friday and discuss that um, in, uh, in detail. It's going to be an interesting watch. Um, it is going to be a lengthy one. So we'll, uh, we'll get into another extra innings game for what I believe is like the third straight week here. So... Uh, looking forward to uh, to some good baseball um, on uh, on Friday to to be discussed. You can find the Baseball America College podcast on any of your favorite podcasting apps, whether that's uh, Apple Podcast, Spit, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you're finding your podcast. You can find us. Please subscribe if you can rate and review as well helps other people to find the podcast and, and it helps us out and we, we greatly appreciate everyone that takes the time to do either one of those things you can follow joe and i on twitter uh i am at ted cahill joe is at joe healy ba 
We'll have plenty more content over on the website, baseballamerica.com throughout the week. There'll be another coaching confidential. Joe has his uh, stock watch series continuing and we will have uh, some teams that just missed out on the top 25. Those are some of the highlights to, to look for throughout this week. Uh, over on the website. So, so please check that out as well if you are so inclined. We'll be back here on Friday. Until then, I want to thank you guys for listening. Thanks to Joe for joining me. I've been Teddy Cahill. We'll see you next time on the Baseball America College podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.